Well, good morning. Let's try that again. Good morning. There you are. I was getting ready to compliment you guys, saying, you know, we added 60 new chairs last week, and you filled the room, and there's like 4,000 people gone on spring break, and you filled the room, and then you didn't even say good morning, so now I'm in a bad mood, all right? But if you have your Bibles, grab, grab them and get to 1 Timothy. Uh, we're going to be in chapter 1, which we've been in for several months now, but we're actually going to end chapter 1 today, so we're making some progress, and we're excited about that. I want to uh, this series in the book of First Timothy, and so we're just going to keep going on to that. And I was looking at these passages, this, these verses this week, and I thought, man, I just don't, I don't really know of a way to to maybe tie this into Palm Sunday. So I'm just going to mention that it's Palm Sunday, and then let that be that, right? And then at the conclusion of our first service, Pastor Adam came up and tied in these passages to Palm Sunday in about four seconds. So he's just a better pastor than I am, and maybe maybe he should have preached today, but. Um, this is it, like happy Palm Sunday, that's all I'm going to say, okay? Um, but I'd, I would like to mention that we have uh, two services on Good Friday, uh, 3 o'clock um, and 7 p.m. If you're looking for child care, come to 3 o'clock service. Um, we'll have child care that at 7, we will not. Um, we have no idea how this is going to work. We've never done two Good Friday services before, um, and so we'll learn the same time as you do. But uh, we did it at Christmas Eve, it seemed to be a pretty big hit, and so we're trying it again. And then next Sunday... Um, we're going to be uh, at 8 o'clock, 9.30, and 11.15. So um, you have three services to choose from. Uh, please come to at least one of them, and, uh, and we want you to invite people. Uh, we've made some invite cards for you in the back, so we want you to be able to grab those, pass them out. Every study, every statistic will show you that if you invite someone around Easter, they're way more likely to say yes. And so uh, take advantage of that. Next Sunday, just so you know, we will not be in First Timothy. We're going to take a one-week break. And talk about the resurrection, because I thought Easter would be a pretty good time to talk about that. So um, that's where we're going to be next Sunday, and so we hope that you uh, are looking forward to all that. It's a pretty big week around here, but we're excited that you're here today, and so I'm going to ask you to join me in a word of prayer. Father, we are so grateful uh, for each and every person who's here, uh, each and every person who's joining us online, and, and just for the opportunity we have to open your word now. And so we're, we're thankful already for how you met us in worship uh, how you inhabited the praise of your people, how you were enthroned by them, uh, Lord. But now we ask that as we turn our attention to your word, that you would be the one who speaks loudest, you would be the one who teaches the clearest, and that we would respond to you and humility and submission and worship in whatever way you lead us to today. Get the glory from this, and we pray this all in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Well, for almost every bad moment, there's a good moment that precedes it. I started uh, my first job at Clover Meadows Golf Course at the age of 13. Um, child labor laws are killing this country, right? Um, but I loved working at that age because um, for the first time as a 13, I actually had a little bit of cash. And that was fun. I could not have to ask my parents for something. And then in addition, I really just got into the game of golf. And so I would work my shift and then get free golf after it. And so it was just a, a wonderful job. I enjoyed every aspect of it. But the one thing I didn't like when I was 13 and 14 and 15 is that I was dependent on other people to give me rides. Um, so I couldn't just go to work early if I wanted. I couldn't just leave when I was done. I, I was dependent on my parents to pick me up and drop me off. And I didn't like this very much, and it didn't take them very long where they didn't like it very much either. Um, and what we discovered was there was a lane uh, just about not very far from my house that I knew would go back to our neighbor's house, but it actually connected all the way through several miles of farmland and came out right by uh, the golf course. And what was, better, what was better even than that, that we knew every single person who lived on that or owned those properties, and we were close to them. 
And I knew if I asked them, I would be able to use it. And so I came up with this brilliant idea. What if we got a moped? Right? And I could ride this motorized scooter down that lane, and, and I would never get on a highway, and so I'd never be in trouble, I'd never be at risk. I could ride that thing to and from work. I could go when I wanted and come when I wanted. And, and, and I was shocked at how open my parents were to the idea. I think they were that tired of already giving me rides. And so I really thought this was all coming together. Well, a couple nights later, I was closing at the golf course. It was a Thursday night, which is a night a lot of guys come and play cards. And so um, my family was at a church league softball game, so I knew I was going to be there late. Uh, they are going to pick me up around 9, 30, or 10. And one of the guys who came to play his cards had a moped that he rode that night. And he had a for sale sign on it. And I was like, look what the Lord is doing. Right? He's just opening up the heavens. This is, this is all meant to be. And so I went up to him and said, hey, do you mind if I you know, take that for a test drive? Because I, I think I'd be interested. And he's like, sure, go ahead. And wouldn't you know it that at, at Clover Meadows Golf Course, there's a gravel path that goes from the clubhouse all the way back to the work shed. Um, it's about a mile and a half long. It's, it's, it's almost identical to the path that would be from my house uh, to the golf course. And I thought, well, I'll just take it for a test drive down this path. And I'd never driven one before. I got on. I was a little nervous. I started up and it took off, and immediately a huge smile just went across my face because it's literally like riding a bike. I was like, this is the easiest thing ever. And so I'm cruising down, and, and at this moment, like, everything is falling in place. I have decided that I'm going to make an offer on this today. My parents are going to say yes, and within three days, I'm going to have transportation independence. I'll be able to go where I want and, and leave when I want, and it's, everything is great. And I have this huge smile on my face, and I get to a long straightaway, and, and stupid 13-year-old Brett thinks this. Now, let's see what this baby can do. Let's see how fast we can take this thing. Because right, it's a long straight. What I forgot... Because, again, this was a pathway used for trucks, and I wasn't driving a truck at 13, is that right in the middle of this, there's a sudden drop-off. Which, if you're on four wheels and in a truck, it's not a big deal. If you're on a scooter for the first time, seeing how fast it can possibly go, a little bit bigger of a deal. And I hit that thing like evil Knievel. I go airborne. And I still, to this day, believe, had I known it was coming, I would have landed it. But when you're on the ground, and then you're in the air, and you didn't think you are going to be in the air... You don't got a lot of a shot there. And so what happened was when it landed, I was thrown from the moped. Now, here's the best part of the story. That moped actually stayed upright, veered to the left, rolled over into the fairway, and then slowly tipped over. Never got a scratch, never got a dent, nothing happened to it. Which, thankfully, because, you know, I hadn't bought it yet. And what happened to me was not that, though. Because I was thrown right down the gravel path with no helmet on, wearing shorts and a t-shirt, skidding down this guy at whatever rate of speed I was going. Uh, I ended up spending the night in the emergency room. I had to get a bunch of stitches. Um, they, they weren't sure if I had a concussion because they asked my parents, is he confused? Is he mumbling a lot? Is he, is he, is he disoriented? And they're like, he's that way every day. So they wouldn't know. They had a really hard time figuring out whether I had a concussion or not. And it was, I just remember thinking that right before that, everything was so good. But I was going to have transportation independence, and in the next moment, it was all gone, including all the skin on the right side of my body. Right? You've ha you've, you may have not crashed spectacularly, but you can relate with this, right? You, had, you have a diet that's going so well, and then one of your coworkers brings square donuts in, and then it's over. Right? Or let's say you have a family day at the park, and, and everybody's enjoying it, it's going swimmingly, and all of a sudden, your kid starts doing the penguin walk because uh, they just filled their pants without telling you. And you were supposed to bring the diaper bag, and you told your wife that you did bring the diaper bag, and you didn't. Forget all these details. I'm just using a random example, right? <laughs> right? Things can go well until they don't go well anymore. 
And here's the point, right? In a much more serious, somber way, our faith is similar to this. Our, our walk with Jesus, our witness, our ministry, both as individuals and as a church, can be going really well and then not go well anymore. Because when we are saved, we are saved by Jesus from the penalty and from the power of sin, but we are not saved from our sinful nature. We still have it while we're here. And so we say we're not saved from our ability to make choices, including bad choices. And so we can use, we can, to use Paul's term that we're going to read here in 1 Timothy 1, we can absolutely shipwreck our faith. And this is not what Paul wants for Timothy that he's writing to. It's not what Jesus wants for us. And so my prayer this morning is that we would heed the warning of this passage, because there is a process we must go through uh, to get to that point, and Paul is trying to point this out to Timothy, to protect him from it. I want this to raise our awareness of this and help us guard against it. So I'm going to invite Roxanne forward to read uh, today's passage. She's going to read 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 18 through 20, and if you are physically capable, would you please stand with her for the reading of God's word? Good morning, Roxanne. Morning. Timothy, my son, I am giving you this instruction in keeping with the prophecies previously made about you, so that by recalling them, you may fight the good fight, having faith and a good conscience. Some have rejected these and have shipwrecked their faith. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom, whom I have delivered to Satan, so that, they may be, so that they may be taught not to blasphemy. Thank you. You guys can have a seat. So keep your Bibles open right there. We're going to look at uh, those verses this morning. And just as a reminder, this is not a book, it's a letter. It's a letter from the Apostle Paul, which is one of the most uh, early, most authoritative church leaders to Timothy, who is his protege, uh, who he calls his son in the faith. He's left him uh, there at the church in Ephesus because it's in such a mess, and he's, t- and he's giving Timothy instruction on how to kind of clean it up. And so in this, like we said, this is a warning passage. It's meant to raise awareness. And so there's a, there's a few truths I want to pull out from it. And the first one is this, that faith and conscience are intertwined. Okay, I want you to look at the start of verse 19 again. He's, he writes, having faith and a good conscience. Okay, now these are two uh, pretty consistent themes of Paul's writings. And in his letters in the New Testament, he writes about the conscience 21 different times. And when Paul's writing, uh, especially in these pastoral epistles, he mentions faith and conscience together a lot. And so for a couple examples of this, look earlier in chapter 1 at verse 5, when he writes, now the goal of our instruction is love that comes from a pure heart, and listen to this, a good conscience and a sincere faith. Then if you flip over to chapter 3 and verse 9, he's talking about deacons, and he says, holding the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And so I point those out to you to to, to show you this, that clearly in the mind of Paul, faith and conscience are connected to and dependent upon each other. If you have strength in one, you will have strength in the other. If there's a failure in one, you will have a failure in the other. And so how does this work? Okay, it, it works like this. Faith is that sincere belief that God knows what is best. Conscience, your conscience is that inner voice that judges us when we're wrong, approves us when we're right, and for the life of a Christian, it is, it is often directed by the Holy Spirit within us. And so to shipwreck your faith, to use Paul's term, requires you damaging both of these. You must decide at some point that you know better than God. 
But in order to make that decision, what you have to do is you have to injure or sear or block out or ignore your conscience. This is why bad doctrine almost always stems from bad conduct. Right? Theological error is often rooted in moral failure. It starts like this. It starts when you read God's word and you, you get to a verse and you're like, hmm, man, I, just, I don't really like that. I kind of wish it said something different than that. That didn't make me feel good. I'm not, I'm not comfortable with that. And instead of in that moment immediately checking yourself and saying, wait a minute, wait a minute, I have faith that God is good. I believe that he knows better than me. And so it's my job to, to line up to him, not his to accommodate to me. What we do instead is we get restless in our discomfort. And we start going back to that very first uh, original temptation in the garden that the enemy used on Adam and Eve, which is this. Did God really say that? I mean, is that really what it means? Or is there a way that I can make this verse not mean what it says? Now, back in Paul's day, uh, there was these clever people who used their intellect, who used uh, certain aspects of the Old Testament law, who, to, who used uh, new mystical teachings to deceive the church and, st- and distort truth. It's what's happened in Ephesus. It's why Timothy's there. And they always did this to gain influence and power, but mostly what they used it for was to justify their lifestyle that was contrary to good teaching. It was to justify a lifestyle that was contrary to what Paul would write in verse 11 as sound teaching that conforms to the gospel. Nowadays, we don't need that. We have the internet. It's, it's way more easy, right? You can find someone on the internet saying anything you want. I mean in anything. You take something in the Bible you don't like, you'll find someone claiming to be a Christian or be a pastor and telling you the Bible doesn't really mean what it says in that verse. And then they try to posture themselves as, as intellectually superior as, as, as to why they have figured this out rather than all the simpletons who just believe the verse for what it says. And it reminds me of my favorite Benjamin Franklin quote, in which Benjamin Franklin wrote, the learned fool writes his nonsense in better language than the unlearned, but it's still nonsense. To know this, right, to do this, deep down requires you to be at a moment that you know you crossed the line. You know this doesn't line up with good, clear interpretation, and you have to ignore and sear your conscience, and what comes with that is the damaging of faith. Paul says these two are connected, they're intertwined, they cannot be separated. The second truth we can see from this passage is that absolutely you can shipwreck your faith. You can. Not only can you do it, it's happened. From the beginning of the Christian faith till now. Now, I think it's fair to point this out, and you might disagree with me on this, but shipwrecking your faith does not mean losing your salvation. Now, obviously, shipwrecking your faith is an analogy, okay? And so, in, in that interpretation, my own theological glasses and bent is coming through, right? Because I, I believe and I proclaim eternal security for those in Jesus because I think that the scriptural case for that is solid, if not overwhelming, Right, but the simplest way that I can put it, I don't believe that I could ever lose what I never earned. Right, my salvation was not dependent on my faithfulness at its origins, so I don't think it ever shifts to being dependent on my faithfulness. Otherwise, it stops being by grace. But here's, here's a little good news for you. If you disagree with me on that, disagreeing with me is normally a winning position. Historically, you're on the right side on that one, okay? Lots of smart people have. And it's not going to affect our relationship at all. After all, when we get to heaven, we'll both learn I was right and we can move on. But here's what we can't do, okay? Even if I'm right, even if the loss of salvation isn't on the table here, that doesn't mean this wouldn't be devastating. Shipwrecking is an analogy, sure, but can we agree it's not a positive one? 
And by the way, Paul was a guy who was shipwrecked three times. He knows how miserable it is. Let me ask you this. You want to make a shipwreck of your life? You want to make a shipwreck of your marriage, of your relationships? Of course not. So to shipwreck your faith would be to sever your, your fellowship with the Lord. To shipwreck your faith would be to sear your own conscience. To shipwreck your faith would be to feel the ramifications of your own sin. To shipwreck your faith is, is to ruin not only your reputation, but to do a great harm to the name of Jesus and could stand in the way of others coming to him. That's not even in the entirety of the list. But the results of this would be devastating. And it happens way too often. And the reason is, is because the church is in constant battle with the forces of evil. And this battle is very real, and it is ongoing in your life. And in fact, if you're unaware of this battle, you are the most at risk to becoming a casualty of it. Which is why the writers of Scripture are constantly warning us. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11 to 12, put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the schemes of the devil. Does that sound like, get ready, get ready to take a walk in the park? No. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. That's who we're battling against. 1 Peter 5 8, be sober minded, be alert. You know what he's saying? Wake up. And here's why because your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for anyone he can devour. Now, these passages in the Bible aren't meant to depress you. They aren't meant to drive you into fear. We'll get to 2 Timothy 1. It tells us we aren't given a spirit of fear. But they are absolutely meant to wake you up. They're awareness passages. Because the only thing worse than being under attack is not knowing the attack is coming. This is why conscience and faith were so big for Paul. It's why he wanted to instill them in Timothy. Because the press was coming. Because the kingdom of darkness absolutely would make a move. And Timothy also needed to be aware of this because as an elder and a pastor, he has a role to play in this in the Ephesians church, which brings us to the third point, which is this, that it's the church's calling from God to protect the flock. Part of the calling on the church is to protect the flock. Not only can you shipwreck your faith, Paul's got receipts. He mentions them right here. He mentions two men by name, men that Timothy would know. He would know their stories. And there's a phrase that I want to point out to you in verse 20. Look at verse 20. He says, among them are Hymenius and Alexander, whom I have delivered to Satan, so that they may be taught not to blaspheme. That phrase jump out to you too? Whom I have delivered to Satan. That seems pretty daunting, doesn't it? You know what this means? This means that Hymenius and Alexander were removed from the fellowship of the local church. They were removed from the Ephesians church. They were kicked out. And it sounds drastic now, but back then it was an even bigger deal because we have something like 170-odd churches in Terre Haute, and so if you were removed from this fellowship, you could go down the street and find another one. But when Paul writes to Ephesus, there is the church at Ephesus, and that's the list. And so to be removed from that is to be removed altogether. No connection, no community, no fellowship with the believers. And this would be devastating. And every time this comes up, Every time we find passages on this, every time it's taught from, there are always these well-meaning objections, which sound something like this. Well, that doesn't sound very forgiving. And that doesn't sound very gracious. And that doesn't sound very loving. And isn't the church supposed to be forgiving and gracious and loving? Well, I want to challenge you to rethink that objection on a few levels this morning. And the first is this, that the motivation behind this is really clear in the Scriptures. 
In verse 20, it says right here that he's done this so that they may, taught, may be taught not to blaspheme, right? Sin is so much more dangerous than we give it credit for. But using sin to influence the church multiplies that danger. And every example of this type of church discipline we find in the New Testament, the motive of it is restorative, not punitive. In fact, we can see this thread run throughout the letters to the church at Corinth. There is a man living in grotesque sin in the church at Corinth. And in 1 Corinthians, Paul tells them, he writes them and orders them to remove that man from his fellowship, to kick kick him out of the church. And they do. But guess what happens? By the time he's writing 2 Corinthians, that man has repented, has found forgiveness in the Lord. He's restored back to the church. And Paul is writing and telling them to embrace him back fully. It is a huge success story. And so when you read verse 20, I don't want you to read it like Paul is gunning for these two guys. No, he's doing what is best for them and best for the church. Here's a second level I want you to rethink any objection you might have to this. At some point in our society, we have confused love with implicit support of everything somebody does. We're told now that in order to love someone, you must support everything that they do. Supporting every decision someone makes is not loving. Do not confuse that. Loving someone is wanting what is best for them, whether they want it in the moment or not. And the third way I want you to rethink any objection to this is this is so much bigger than just these two men. The job of the church and the elders that God gives each church is to protect the people. This is why James says that teachers are going to be judged more harshly, a verse I love and hate at the same time. And here's why. If I come up with some damaging, foolish idea, what that will do is just simply hurt me. But if I turn and then publicly teach it, and then influence others and encourage them to embrace that same damaging, foolish idea, that I'm hurting a whole lot more people at that point. And so I want to be overt about this this morning. Just kind of sit here for a moment. And I'll let you know that you're going to find intentional safeguards around here at FBN. And number one is just simply how we're structured. We have a board of elders. You're going to hear more about these uh, guys when we get to chapter 3 of 1 Timothy. But one of their main jobs, right, one of the jobs given to them by God in the Bible is to guard the teaching and the doctrine of the church. So if myself or Adam or another speaker, group leader or teacher start sharing or teaching or promoting false doctrine around here, they will be corrected by our elders. And if it's not made right and it's not corrected or it continues, they absolutely will be removed. That's part of our structure. Secondly, we've built this into our discipleship process. For instance, as you come to FBN, we want to help you. We want to be your resource to help you love God, love people, and reach the world. And in that, we have developed an actual growth track, a discipleship process for you to follow to help you accomplish all three of those things. And one of the very first steps in that past Sunday morning attendance is to get you into a group. And we have a whole group of, of group leaders now. And I want you to know, though, those didn't come out of nowhere. This group ministry was started with C groups that had vetted leaders who we knew and trusted would teach the right things. And every group leader since then has signed a group leader covenant. And the design of these groups is, yes, that they would multiply and create more groups and more leaders. But in order for someone to meet a group, they must first go through one. That way they can be trained. They can be vetted. They can be heard from. That we can know them because we have to ensure that what is being taught in these groups under the name of FBN lines up with what the Word of God says. It's why every ministry leader here at FBN signs a covenant that they will recognize and understand that the, the influence that their position inherently has, and they will commit to us in the Lord that they will use that influence for good and not to shipwreck their faith or others. 
And through all of that, you might be listening to that and be like, boy, you guys are rigid and you're uptight and you're controlling. And while I would disagree with all that, I would much rather prefer to be criticized in that way than to have false teaching spread through this congregation. And just so you know, our elders have been given this spiritual authority by the Lord. They can remove any one of us, myself included, should we be spreaders of falsehood, promoters of evil, or influencers away from the gospel. Now, my goal is that they'll never, ever have to use that particular purpose of their office. And I hope it's yours, too. But this letter was written from an apostle to a church elder and pastor. And so a lot of it you're going to find will be about church design and church setup and the way church functions. And I want you to have a good grasp on that. I really do. I want you to know both what the Bible calls us to as a church and how FBN is structured. But I also think it's important that if you're here this morning that we bring this home. And so for a few moments, just setting church structure and church discipline aside, what can we all take from this passage? How can you respond to the truth that you absolutely have within your capabilities, the shipwrecking of your faith? And that's why I want to land this today. Because there are two things that I'm praying that God is heightening my view of, and the same two things I'm praying that you'll place a high value on. The first is this. I'm asking you to place a really high value on a good conscience. This matters. Place a high value on having a good conscience. This comes down to whose voice is loudest in your life. And whose voice sways you the most? Whose influence is greater? No matter how strong you think you are, a lot of this will ride on input. That which you expose yourself to over and over and over and over and over again will absolutely change the way you think. And this is undeniable. Because nothing shapes our culture and society today more so than the internet. And it's, it's accelerating, right? What, what used to take years to kind of shape a culture and move it forward now can happen in days. And it can happen in days because of just the endless overwhelming amount of material and voices and input because of mob mentality that wins the day, the disagreement is a thing of the past, you either conform or get discarded, and so change is happening quickly. And speaking in direct contrast to all of this, by the way, is the word of God that you're holding in your hands. The word of God in the book of James says that God gives grace to the humble. It says that we should be quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to become angry. The word of God in the book of Hebrews says that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The one that in 1 Peter says that the word of the Lord will endure forever. The one in Philippians says that we should consider others more important than ourselves. The one whose, whose book in Genesis says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. So God created man in his own image, male and female. He created them. The one in Acts that says, there is no other name by heaven by which you can be saved other than Jesus. And the one in John in which Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. Page after page after page of these grace-soaked, lasting, eternal truths from our creator to the prize of his creation. And if our consciences are clean, if they're good, then we line up with him. And far too often, man, we, we, have, we have portrayed holiness as uptight or rigid or difficult when, it, when it's not the case. You realize how freeing righteousness is. To, to, not, to not have to sear your conscience anymore, to have someone come up and say to you, you know what I found out about you this week, and you fearing nothing coming back. And there's no greater freedom than that. 
We cannot value sin more than we value Jesus. We cannot value another influence more than we value the influence of Jesus. And just so we're clear on this, if it takes you 15 to 20 minutes of talking or two to, two to four pages of writing to tell me why a verse doesn't say what it clearly says, then you're bringing your own biases into that interpretation. We keep our conscience clean by letting the word of God speak for itself, by seeing it as our authority, by pursuing it and reading it and studying it and ensuring that we don't grant another influence greater power than God in our lives. I want you to place a high value on having a good conscience. And secondly, place a high value on having sincere faith. I was talking, uh, I think it was last year sometime, to, to somebody who just couldn't understand, just couldn't wrap their heads around why I wasn't in the same uh, theological camp uh, with them on a certain issue. And I was finally like, I was already tired of the conversation, but I was like, you know what, just tell me why you've come to the conclusion you have. And then what, their basic answer was this. Well, it just answered all my questions when I filtered everything through this. I thought, well, that's, that's nice for you. I, I felt good for them, and we agreed to disagree and moved on. And then the longer I thought about it, the less good I felt about it. And here's why. If God is God, and if his ways are above my ways, and if without faith it's impossible to please him, then the only conclusion I can come to that is that I'm not looking for all the answers. I don't need a God that I can understand fully. In fact, I don't want that. What I believe fully is that God has revealed everything that I need to know about him in his word. And I have discovered that God does not do things the way that I would do them. He uses different timing than I use. He, he values different things than I do. He has different strategies and goals than I do. And you know what else? He's never one time consulted me on what he's doing. Never asked for my input. Never wanted to know if I agreed with it. And so there are passages in the Bible that I still wrestle with. I don't have an explanation that erases all of my struggle with it. And I've come to the conclusion that part of the reason those passages are in there are for that reason, for me to wrestle with them. And to bring me to a point where I say, you know what, I don't get it. And I might not even like it, but I know this. You are God, you are good, you are perfect in all your ways, and I simply need to surrender. My favorite John Piper quote, I've used it in probably 80 sermons now, is simply this. Most of the Bible is only understood once it's obeyed. We need to place a high value on getting to a posture of surrender to and trust in God when it feels good and absolutely when it doesn't. To say, even though I don't see it yet, even though I'm not at peace with it yet, even though I'm not comfortable with it yet, if it comes from you, Lord, that's enough for me. And if you're not there this morning then here's what I know to be true. I cannot talk you into that. I can't. I could extend the sermon another 24, 48 hours and just keep going, and I would never talk you into it. And so what I'll do is I'll just simply point you to a father in the Bible whose little boy was sick, and he brings him to Jesus, and, he sa and the dad says to Jesus, if you can help us, please do. And Jesus, I love this, almost gets incredulous. He's like, if I can... This is Jesus' moment of like, do you know who you're talking to? Of course I can. And he looks at that and he says, anything is possible for the one who believes. And you know what the dad says back? I believe, Lord. Please help my unbelief. That's what I'm asking you to do today. Go to God with your unbelief and with your struggling and with your wrestling. Say, Lord, Lord, I'm, I'm struggling with this. 
I don't, I don't see it. I'm not comfortable with it. I wish it was different. And so would you change my view? Would you change my circumstance? Would you help me to get it? And if not, that's okay. Would you at least bring me to a place where I trust you and obey you even when I don't get it? Help me, Lord. Help me believe that you are best. Help me believe that you know what is best. Help me believe that you don't owe me an explanation on everything. And help me believe that I will be better off when I adhere to you and your word. That is a sincere faith. It's one that we should place a high value on and plead with the Lord for. Because our faith, our witness, our testimony can assuredly be shipwrecked. And Paul tells Timothy in this passage that the antidote to that is having a good conscience and having a sincere faith. And so in light of that, I say today that we go to the Lord together as a church, asking him to strengthen both of those things in us. Let's pray. God, I'm thankful this morning for the really wise counsel of the Apostle Paul. I'm thankful that in, in, in talking to, writing to his, his young protege, his young son, son of the faith that he's left in a really difficult post, he reminds him, this can all go badly. This can all go badly if, if you're not aware of the, of the schemes of the devil. This can all go badly if you sear your conscience. This can all go badly if you stop valuing a sincere faith. And Lord, Help us this morning to start from this point of humility of recognizing we're all capable of this. We're all capable of thinking there's some asterisk in the Bible by verses we don't like, and at the bottom it says, not for me. We're all capable of, of trying to explain away why it doesn't say what it says. We're all capable of not liking something and then just trying to ignore it. We're all capable of shipwrecking our faith. And so, Lord, in light of that, would you, would you strengthen our conscience this morning? Would you give us wisdom to know uh, exactly what you are calling us to do in this word and, and to be resolute and firm on that? And then, God, for the teachings and the passages that, that go against what we hear elsewhere, that go against what we, what we feel, that, that go against our gut when we read them, Lord, would you give us the faith to say, if it's from you, it's good enough for me? hope you bring us to a point where we have more peace and comfort from it, but in the meantime, I'll simply just trust you. Lord, would you do this for our sake? Would you do this so that we will not shipwreck our own faith, but we also do for the sake of those that we're around and for the testimony of the name of Jesus that comes through this congregation? And we pray this all in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Well, before these guys lead us in one final song, we're going to give you a couple moments just to respond to the Lord and what he may be doing in your heart and your mind your life today. Uh, there's some guidance for you for prayer points on the screen if you need him, but this, we just wanted to pause and give you some time to, to pray to him, respond to him, what he might be doing in your life. So this is your time.